Woody Guthrie. You remember Woody Guthrie, the old uh, folk singer from the, from the 30s, the, the activist, the kind out of the Dust Bowl era. And he, he says a song, he, he comes right out of the era of the Great Depression. He has this song that it says, California is a garden of Eden, a paradise to live in or see. But believe it or not, you won't find it so hot if you ain't got the dough, Ray me. California did sound like the Garden of Eden in the 1930s as a result of the Dust Bowl refugees going to the West, coming to California. Today, it seems that the tables have turned. The drought in California is unprecedented. And it is dangerous. There's real concern about it. Mainly because California's uh, agricultural uh, um, uh, prowess, is, is, it puts many nations to shame. It is a truly a breadbasket to the world, fruits and vegetables and agriculture that is uh, born of, of irrigation. And if irrigation and irrigated fields, you know, if the water dries up uh, permanently, the consequences could be quite serious. Drought, though, has been the scourge of, of uh, farmers and agriculture for as long as ag agriculture has existed. existed. The ancient Israelites knew this experience well. So when the author of Psalm, of Psalm 1, uses and sings of trees planted by rivers and streams of water which yield their fruit in its season and their leaves do not wither, it is an idyllic vision. Something approaching the paradise to live in or see of Guthrie's song about the Dust Bowl refugees. This psalm is a student's psalm. The psalmist isn't singing of real farmers. Psalm 1, which serves as a kind of a preface to the hymnal, the psalms are hymns and poems to be used in worship. It's kind of the hymnal of ancient Israel and it's a preface, and it's an exhortation to the students of the Torah to be diligent in their studies. That's what this first psalm is about. Their delight, it says, is in the law of the Lord, and on law, uh, God's law they meditate day and night. And that's how to attain a rich yield of spiritual fruit, to plant yourself deep into God's word. Such in-depth study of the scriptures, though, is far more than intellectual rigor. There's an existential element to it as well. It's a matter of identity. You know, Eugene Peterson, I really like his, uh, his work, and he's a pastor that I knew, and is the author of The Message, if any of you have used that, and he was a pastor in Montana. And uh, he, he writes this about the Bible. The entire Bible's biblical story never lets us forget that it is, a God, it is a God story of our salvation. Not a collection of moral achievements for it to use as, moral, as a moral handbook. This is the narrative of what God does to save us, not what we do to please him. 
And as we read these narratives, we learn not to take sides too quickly, but rather discern God's presence coming into view and his willing and, and his will being worked out all over the place, often in persons and places we least expect. Sometimes I think of our rootedness, when we think about rootedness in God's word, we get rootedness in our side. And to get, read the Bible to make sure that we are correct and that we have the weapons to use to make sure that we let them know they are not correct. That's not what Psalm 1 is about. That's not the existential element of what, the, what it means to be rooted and to be by rivers of, of life. Eugene Peterson says it well. The other person who says it well is C.S. Lewis, and he writes this. He says, it is in Christ himself, not the Bible, that who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him. We must not use the Bible as a sort of encyclopedia out of which texts can be taken to use as weapons. That's what the Bible seems to be today. There's no wisdom in there's no life in that. The streams of life. One of the great uh, Christian storytellers of modern times was a Jesuit priest um, uh, by the name of Anthony de Mello. He is a Jesuit priest from India. And one of his, de Mello's many parables is about a woman who was in a coma and she's slowly dying. And as the woman lay on her uh, sickbed, she had a sudden feeling that she had been taken up to heaven and she's standing there before God. And she could see nothing and only the clouds and, uh, of, and of dark smoke and then out of the billowing smoke came a voice. It says, who are you? And not knowing what else to say, she turned uh, to the answer to answer and she used her uh, most often her, her most favorite position in, in life and she said, I'm the wife of the mayor. And, uh, says, and the voice says, I did not ask you whose wife you are. Who are you? I'm the mother of four children, she continued. Again, came, I did not ask whose mother you are, but who are you? I'm a school teacher. I did not ask your profession. Who are you? And so it went, the same question repeated over and over. No matter what the uh, woman replied, her answers didn't meet. It didn't match the question. It was unacceptable. Finally, she thought, and she tried another answer, and she said, I am a Christian. But that too was unacceptable. I did not ask you your what your religion is, but who are you? I'm the one who went to church every week and always helped the poor and the needy. I did not ask you what you did. I asked, who are you? And DeMello concludes his parable by observing that the woman was sent back to earth and soon after she awakes from her coma, she resumes her life. But something was, is different. Something has changed about her. From that day forward, the woman resolved resolves to discover who she is. And that, the storyteller concludes, makes all the difference. So who are you, really? 
strip away all those layers that you've spent in your life carefully building up all those labels, those titles, those definitions, what's left? What is the essential core of yourself that God sees? That is what happens when we are as a tree planted by streams of water. We are to discover there who we are at our core. Planted by water. For the rabbinical student, for the uh, Christian as well, the answer to the question of the essential core of who we are has to do not so much with what we do in Bible study as far as whose sake, for whose sake we do it. Psalm 1 begins on a positive note. Blessed are they. Happy are they. It's the same thing. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked. Now, that's a no-brainer. Right? Whoever wants to be on the side of the bad guys, who's, who does that? No. No kid ever being introduced to Star Wars for the first time has ever yearned to say, I want to be an Imperial Stormtrooper when I grow up. Or go back even further to the great movie of The Wizard of Oz. Who wants to sign up for the Wicked Witch's Flying Monkey Squadron? That's not what we aspire to be. And yet, the advice of the wicked never arrives to us in such an easy-to-discern form. In the real world, wickedness rarely clothes itself in ominous colors like the dark black Darth Vader or has the distinctive voice of saying, Tom! It doesn't do that. It presents itself as appealing and attractive and comfortable. The voice of the wicked is subtle and attractive. Today's wicked advice presents itself, especially in the hands of advertisers, as simply what everybody wants. That's the voice of the wicked. It really pays to seek out the underlying message behind all those appeals that boil down simply down to this, better living through better spending. I like the luxury car ad proclaimed that talks about happiness. Blessed is the man, blessed is the person. It says this, if money can't buy you happiness, consider leasing it. But all day long, we're bombarded with this wonderful voice. And it's bad advice. It's setting us up for failure, for emptiness. It's leading us away from a real thriving core. It's leading us into drought and dryness. For who can buy and achieve everything touted by the advertisers? It's an endless search that leads us into a wrong path. These subtle bits of advice can shape the way we think and can mold our dreams and even our values. Caveat emptor. Buyer, beware of that voice. So when the psalmist says that our best chance of happiness is when we do not follow the advice of the wicked, let us be mindful of what that constitutes, wicked, these days. Sinners. 
the sinner's path. Happy are those who do not take the path of the sin, uh, that sinners tread. This is one more step beyond listening to bad advice. It is following that bad advice. The Hebrew word for sinner used here by the psalmist doesn't refer to a person who's bad to the core. Literally, it means a person who has missed the mark, like the archer who's aiming at the target and it just flies off to the left or to the right. And it's just missing the mark. We don't have to look very far to see there are plenty of people who are missing the mark. Sometimes it's just a look in the mirror. And we get caught up in the rat race of materialism. Thank you. Bringing it home. Okay. I hear nothing but uh, uh, um, uh, complaints about traffic. Right? We live in a, and it's getting worse. I've read articles and the statistics are showing that our region is, is moving up fast. It's, it's rivaling San Francisco and, and Los Angeles. There's something to aspire to. But traffic is bad. But guess what? The road, the path of sinners, traffic is bad. The rat race is filled with travelers. The path that sinners tread is well traveled. So what's the most important part of the tree? The roots. You saw that. Yeah, I did that just for us. Ask any landscaper who's transplanting a tree or a plant and you quickly to point out the, uh, that they have to take care of that root ball. That it stays tightly packed and that it's moist, that it gets into the right kind of soil at the right depth. But all kinds of damage can happen in transit to the trunk, to the bark, to the leaves. But if its roots are intact and healthy and it gets into the right soil, it has real hope for growth. The psalmist tree is planted by streams of water. Its roots are sunk into the best possible place. Thirstily, they drink of the life-giving water. If the roots are sunk deep and permanently, not even a drought can keep it from flourishing. Let's close with this thought. I like the thought of the foundational principle of the Benedictine uh, monastic tradition. It's stasio. It's a Latin word. Comes, you know, we get the word um, stationary from that. Not like in paper stationary, less in stationary. Staying put. Staying put. And like uh, uh, some other uh, religious orders, Benedictines don't move around much. A, a request for transfer uh, uh, to a brother uh, monastery must be approved by both abbots. And most of the time, it's refused. That's because the monks of the Benedictine order are meant to be rooted by rivers of living water in the form of their study and the form of their worship in their community. Even for Christians who are not of holy orders, in this frantic, traffic-ridden, rat race world in which we live, we need to have some stationary place 
where we can be rooted. It's called Christian community. We cannot be a collection of individual Christians that happen to get together from time to time and are in proximity to each other. That's not Christian community. That's not rootedness. We have to discover that and be in relationship because that's what it means to be happy and to be planted by rivers with fruit of our lives that will yield much. God's work is regularly and faithfully taught and recommended in, in a place like this where we come together and we share together and we know the love of God. Let us close in prayer.